0: Welcome to the series of podcasts for Fintech CTO Club, a community where tech executives learn and share best leadership practices. Here, Vasyl Soloschuk, CEO of INSART and the author of Fintech CTO Club, will discuss burning topics on the fintech product development arena with the technical leaders in the industry. This is episode 6 of our podcast. Our guest today is Eric Bernhansson, CTO at Better Mortgage, a company that's replacing old mortgage infrastructure with thoughtful technology.
1: Could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and technology world and how are you related to the FinTech at the moment?
0: Sure. Yeah. So I run the tech team at Better. Been here for about four and a half years. Uh, So the tech team is about 40 people. I uh, am a big part of what I've been doing is hiring more people, make sure everyone's happy and productive. Before here, I was at Spotify for six and a half years. Uh, so I was part of uh, Spotify from 40 engineers, or from about 40 people to 2,000 people. Uh, so I went through sort of an interesting startup growth journey. I used to run the machine learning team there, the music recommendation team specifically. So I focused a lot on music recommendations in particular, a lot of large scale machine learning. As so my background is, and before then, I used to run the data team at Spotify briefly. So so my background is quite quantitative statistically, like, like focused on statistics, but, I, but I've been doing a lot of stuff back end, front end, been coding for 25 years. Um, back in high school, I used to go to a lot of programming competitions. Um, so that's sort of my background from Sweden. Yeah,
1: yeah that's cool, cool. So, uh... As you have experienced uh, scaling the teams, you know, like from few people uh, to like a dozen and even 40 people in the team at the moment. Yeah. So uh, I, I have a question like, uh, uh, how will you define who is the best software engineer for your team? As soon as you're recruiting so many people and interviewing so many people, uh, but definitely not hiring everybody, but how will you define? Because this is this definition is different from one one team for another
0: uh, to another team yeah so do you mean throughout the interview process or do you mean once they're actually here and I'm managing them like do you yeah, know
1: I, so let's 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 talk about first of all so let's talk about who will you who will you hire and who will you, uh, and who is not hire for you yeah so who, totally what what yeah. are the criteria? what are the major criterias yeah for...
0: absolutely so, so hiring is something i take very seriously I, i've written a couple of blog posts about interviewing and hiring as well um I, I think startups live and die with the quality of the people they have. And, and so it's probably the most important thing you can do as a CTO. And I think any CTO should spend at least half their time recruiting. Um, and so what I've found is that the most predictive, like you want to look for things that are predictive of future productivity. And so the things that, t- that I t- tend to think are most predictive is, um, is uh, first of all, hiring journalists. I think uh, i'd rather hire someone who's like knows a little bit about everything because the truth is at a startup a lot of our tech stack is still like yet to be defined and like the biggest value that someone can bring in is like to to come in and say hey actually for this type of problem at my previous job we used to use redis this way and i think we should use redis here as well so like and and, you know and, and like you know for someone to come in and like bring that piece of advice can actually be like super valuable right so what i don't think is super valuable It's like to hire for like super deep, like algorithmic skills. So I try to hire for people who know a little bit about everything. We try to focus a lot on system design. Uh, so basically, you know, I, I focus on like, Hey, you build this system, like kind of whiteboard it out. Like what are all the components? What's the front end? What's the back end? How does the front and the back end talk to each other? What, how would you use a database for this? And then kind of go through like all the different layers, like queues and caches. And would you use a cloud provider for this? Like which one and how, uh, and I found like, people who know a little bit about everything, they tend to be more productive here once they actually join, because a lot of how they contribute is actually like, bringing in sort of, not just like, oh, I know how to solve this, like not just like solving things quickly, but also like bringing in new pieces of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found that people from startups, it's a little bit along the same vein, but like startups tend to be more productive for that reason. I think it's like, you know, first of all, they're generalists, but also I think there's a piece of like autonomy like, there are people who who can take a problem end-to-end and think commercially about it. So, you know, I don't want to be a CTO it's like, sitting down with people and say, hey, you need to add a column to this database table, and then you need to add an endpoint that reads from this column, and, you know, there should be, like, REST and the query parameters should be this. Like, I want an engineer who I can tell, actually, can you do this integration with the third-party API, and then go figure it out themselves? So, so I want people who can, like, figure out, you know, all the sort of business decision along that way that makes sense uh and then uh what else was I gonna say I think I think there's a little bit of like a spectrum between like tools oriented people and like goals oriented people and so sort of kind of similar to what I said like some people like they're very interested in like a particular tool be it could you know it could be like functional programming or like machine learning and like they really want to work on that tool and that's like what gets them excited and those tend to be the people that I don't Think are like super valuable at at like a smaller medium stage startup uh, you want people who don't care about the tool you want people who can focus on a business problem and then pick the tool based on that and so for people who are like super interested in like oh all I want to do is like cool machine learning then they usually say actually you, should, you might actually probably go want to go work at a big company because they then you can like specialize and be like the world leader in like one particular thing here you're gonna have to work on a lot of different things and you know you're not gonna have to go like super deep on the other hand, like at a startup, you're gonna be part of a journey and like be part of building a company, and that's pretty exciting, I think. So, I don't know if that does that answer your question.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. So, um, and uh, it's also interesting to know uh, what I mean. Like, it's, you you have grown the team like from two to forty at the moment in the current company, but and uh, my question is. Uh, what are the major challenges when you need to grow the team and how, do, how will you structure the team? How do you structure the team, you know, at the moment? Because, you know, when you have only a few, few engineers, it's it probably a very flat structure. But when you have a 40 or more people, so you yeah. need maybe to split across uh, product areas or whatever. So what's, what's your approach here? What's your insights uh, on that question?
0: Yeah, uh, first, first of all, in terms of team growth, I don't think there's any secrets. You just need to do a lot of interviews. Uh, And, you know, in particular, I've done something in the order of 2000 interviews since I started here. It's just a numbers game. So you just need to put in the time to hire the right people. That's it, like, you know, and I mean, like, obviously you need to have like a a smart interview process and uh, you need to be able to sell to candidates and, you know, have like market, you know, good salaries in the market you're hiring for. Uh, but, But, you know, none of that, you know, none of that is going to save you from the fact that you're going to have to put in a lot of hours of interviewing or, or like a lot of hours of hiring and recruiting and drinking coffee with people and taking people out for lunch or, you know, talking to people on the phone or whatever. Um, so I think that's always the hardest part of, of hiring. It's like hard. It's like, I always say it's like hard in the sense of like learning Spanish, like, you know, learning Spanish is not hard. Like, you know, everyone can learn Spanish. It's just, but it's hard in the sense that you have to put in thousands of thousands of hours to actually do well. Uh, so it's like hard in that sense. There's like two different meanings of the word hard in English. Um, in terms of team structure, there's a couple of things I feel very strongly about. So first of all, I think at a startup, like you want to optimize for iteration speed, and you also want to optimize for flexibility. And so for that reason, I don't believe in having like a, a back end team and a front end team, for instance. I'd rather, I think it's much better to hire people who are generalists, you know, typically full stack engineers and have them focus on different product areas. Instead of having like a front-end team and a back-end team and a mobile team and a data team or whatever, or like data team is fine. But uh, rather like have like one team focus on like user acquisition, one team focus on this product, one team focus on this product, and then have mm-hmm. people be able to pick up a, a product end-to-end and ship it and have PMs focus on also like a business area. And you know, and, and that way you can iterate quicker and you can also have, you also get a lot of flexibility because the truth is that a startup, you don't know from one day to another, maybe one day it's like, all you need is front end people. And then the next day is like, you need a ton of back end people. And so, mm-hmm. so hiring people who know both is actually fine. Or like that, you know, and again, it goes back to sort of generalists, like the generalist you need at a startup, like it, it's better to hire people who know a little bit about everything. And I found that good backend engineers they don't have a problem like adding a few buttons or foreign fields in the front end. And then you can hire like one or two like front end experts who only do front end. But most of the people I think should be full stack with probably more of a back end focus. Mm-hmm. Um, then I think there's interesting challenges around like how you scale your team. And th- that's like some, something I'm, you know, at the point now where I'm like, we're 40 engineers. So it's not longer like, it's no longer like everyone knows everything that's going on. And so one of the things that I think happens when you're like 30, 40 people is like, I need to spend far more of my time like just talking to people and telling them what's going on in the company. Uh, I, I don't claim to be an expert. Like, you know, if you ask me again, we were at hundred or 200 people. I probably have more to say there, but it's something I find myself doing a lot more and, you know, trying to figure out like, how do I make sure people know what's what's relevant for them that, you know, reduce the information asymmetry. But also I don't want to like waste people's time and like tell them everything that's going on in the company because then they wouldn't get anything done. So like they need to know what's critical for them to make the right decisions. But not like everything, because that, that way they, they wouldn't get anything done. I think, so but, I think,
1: okay. Okay. So do you th- uh, at, at what size of the team do you think the specialization like back and front end uh, engineers will make sense?
0: Uh, I mean, I think, I think back specialization, like never, like I, I, or like, I mean, like in practice, some of my, a lot of my people are back specialized, but I still call them full stack engineer because the expectation is like, even if you're a backend engineer, you should be willing to jump in on the front end and, and do some basic stuff. We started hiring a couple of dedicated, fully focused front end people uh, about a year and a half ago when there was this, you know, when the front end, you know, we decided to, you know, we really care about design. We want, you know, to like have a beautiful website and and we noticed there was a couple of things where we truly needed someone who's like the problem is like if you hired full-stack engineers they don't really care about design as much whereas like there are people out there who are like they love design and they love thinking visually and they like love working with designers and so my feeling is like you want to have like a couple of those like front-end people but i think everyone in the team should actually do a little bit of front-end
1: okay okay and then there's
0: like other specialized roles so i started hiring a data team about Mm -hmm. a year ago i think that one makes a little bit more sense because there's a couple of things they need to know you know they need to have you know good skills a little bit of skills in like statistics a little bit of skills in like etl and data engineering
1: yeah i mean
0: like everyone i'm hiring right now like on the data team are super generalist and i feel quite strongly that i don't want to hire people only know machine learning like they should be people who can like productionize it and like and also work with business people and stuff but but i found that like people who like you know yeah it's like a little bit of a specialized role like you need to be able to talk to even so if, even if it's a generalist role you need to be able to write Build a little bit of stats, like work with business people. You know, build presentations, and those people—they don't need to be like the cutting edge, like world-class back-end developers. They need to know like good enough, like production-level code, but it doesn't have to be like world-class. But it should be like pretty good. So that's a trade-off. Okay,
1: okay, okay got it, got it. So uh, you t- you touched a very interesting question, like uh, that you you don't need to talk to uh, to provide all the information to everybody, and but. Uh, the question is, so do you, do you think uh, uh, there is a difference between a uh, te- technology leader role in a company like uh, Better, which is a fintech company, and non-fintech company? So what, what the difference do you see at the moment? Are there some specific and unique things uh, that are different in the fintech company rather than not fintech company for the for CTO role or engineering um, manager role?
0: That's a good question. I don't think so. I mean, like I spent six and a half years at Spotify and I don't think, maybe I'm biased, but I actually don't Mm -hmm. think there's anything particularly different about the technology organization here compared to what I saw Mm -hmm. at Spotify. I I think to me, the dividing line is more like, are you direct to consumer or are you more of like a SaaS Mm -hmm. company? And I think that tends to be more of like a dividing line. And and most fintech companies like Mm -hmm. are, you know, SaaS companies. Mm -hmm. or like internal tools and that's a little bit different Mm -hmm. but we're a direct to consumer company and so for us I think that's like the most important thing and I think most direct to consumers company probably have a similar engineering organization when you when you do like pure SaaS Uh or or, you know or like just internal tools like it's a little bit different because then you have like sales cycles you have you know release cycles like it's a little bit different Uh, that tends to change a little bit the the engineering develop the the software development lifecycle, maybe also the structure a little bit. Um, And you might have like more like pure backend people because you don't really care as much about design and user satisfaction, or at least it's harder to measure user satisfaction. You also don't have access to the data as much of like how do people actually use the services. So that's a little bit different, but between Better and Spotify, like both are consumer facing companies and I think they run in pretty similar
1: ways okay 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 so in your current role uh how do you split your time is it more focused on the like people management or architecture or technology questions or product uh, or business side so h- h- what 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 maybe the percentage or just what what is the focus between uh these different areas that you need t- uh, to tackle with as a cto yeah i okay.
0: think Hiring is probably 50% of my time, maybe more. Uh, if you add up like interviewing, employer employee, employer, branding, uh, like selling, having like, you know, informal conversations with people, salary negotiations, reference calls, yeah. uh, all that stuff. You know, the hiring is, is the vast majority of what I do. Um, architecture, almost zero. I actually mm-hmm. think that... I don't want to be a chief architect. I think, you know, my my intent is to hire senior engineers and they should be able to make the architectural decisions themselves. I do, I am a very technical person and like I have a long background in architecture. So maybe it's like 2% of my time and like going in and like asking the right questions and making sure we're not doing anything stupid. But to to a large extent, like maybe I'll go in like the other day. Like the other day I was like asking some questions like, you know, we seem to have some long-running queries in our database. That doesn't seem right to me. Like, you know, what's our plan for fixing that? But, like, that wasn't, like, I wasn't, like, spending a lot of my time on it. I just, like, went in and, like, tried to ask the right questions to make sure to, like, push for people to move in the right direction. So, architecture, very little of my time. Um, mm-hmm. Management, quite a lot. Uh, I have, I think, well, right now it's a little bit confusing because I also manage product, but, like, I'm, I'm trying, that's, like, a temporary thing. But otherwise, I'd say, yeah, doing one-on-ones, um, talking to my manager, like, you know, sitting in the executive team and, like, figuring out what's going on, talking about the business strategy. I think that's a fair amount of time. To some extent, like, you know, maybe that's, like, 10 15% of my time. Then there's, like, you know, meeting with investors, putting together, like, helping out with, like, like fundraising. That's maybe, like, 4% of my time. I don't know. Um, what else? I think in like my case like I'm like I have like a deep data background and so Mm -hmm. like I tend to spend my time where my comparative advantage is the largest so I spend a lot of my time maybe like 10-15% of my time on data Mm -hmm. Uh, that's probably a lot lot more than like any other CTO does but it's just because I have that background and I think I can add a lot of value there and the data team is actually pretty small it's only four people right now so I think that's going to go down over time but right now I want to make sure like you know I like I actually think I have a lot of value to add by like introducing certain ways to think about things using statistical models or whatever and by and you know given my long background in machine learning I think there's value I can add there so so yesterday I was actually writing even some code uh, Mm -hmm. for some machine learning stuff we're doing what else spending time on um I don't know I don't know The, the other stuff is like random stuff admin stuff seating charts expense reports um a little bit of like i guess there's like a li- always like a little bit of like project management just making sure like people are working on the right things and shipping the right things It's like a few percent of my
1: time okay got it got it um, so uh Another interesting topic I would like to discuss is related to technical depth, and uh, it's always—I mean—in—in—in in, in any system, you—you—you you, you will have a technical, some certain level of technical depth, and uh, you have a good experience with with uh, with that, and like with migration, different kind of migration. So maybe you can share some of experience. How will you, uh, and how will you? Combine technical depth and uh, actual feature development. What's your strategy? What, uh, I mean, in different situations? Uh, yeah. And should, when should we migrate? What should we uh, just stick to the feature development? So what's, what's your uh, insights yeah. on that question?
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to first answer it someone idealistically. I actually think good software engineers, you know, for them, it's just a matter of adding business value. And like what I always tell people is like you should come in every morning, you should just ask yourselves, like, how do I add the most business value? And so and most of the days it's gonna be by building features. But if you truly think that the best thing for the business is to do tech debt or to reduce tech debt or refactor something, you should totally do it. Like, you know, if like whatever you think adds the most business value. And so what I what I hate is like sometimes like you hear this in teams where it's like oh, we have all this tech debt and like, you know, but the PM doesn't care. They only want to ship features. Like to me that like speaks to like a fundamental misalignment between the engineering manager and the PM. And what Mm -hmm. I always say is like, why wouldn't the PM also like care about whatever adds the most business value? Like at, at the end of the day, we're all in the same boat here. We want to build the most valuable business. So you have a big problem. Like you need to go talk to your PM and like figure out like, you know, does he not, does he or she not understand that this is that, you know, is, or like, or is it maybe that you're exaggerating the amount of business value that would be added by doing this tech debt? And and so I think largely I've been able to avoid it by basically like having, you know, telling smart engineers that like, it's on you. Like, I don't want to like hear you complain about tech debt. That's like, that's a problem you put yourself in. Like, you know, you should have the, the, the sort of uh, the foresight or, or, or the, you know, or the relationship with the PM that you proactively set aside time and, and do whatever it takes to pay down tech debt, if you think it's, that is the highest value for the business. Like, you know, the truth is like a lot of bad code is just like sitting there and no one is touching it. And in that case, the interest rate on that code is actually pretty low and that, that's a good type of debt. And uh, in many cases, I'm actually arguing that like, some types of tech debt is good to take on like sometimes when you're launching the first version of, product, uh, for instance, like you don't know, like you don't know what you're building. And so maybe the first version, you should just like hack something together, get it out there. And, you know, and then maybe like the second version, you should also hack it out, hack it together and get it out there. And then maybe when you're building the third version, now you're like, Oh, actually I noticed there's a yeah. consistent pattern in all of these cases. You know, we've noticed that, uh, um, this is like, this is what we need. And so now we can build like the real system. So for instance, like we had a system to do, um, to ingest all email communication for a long time. And that was like, you know, the first version was like, a total hack, you know, we built it and then it turned out like no one used it. So I'm like really glad we hacked it. Cause like, you know, we didn't, you know, I'm glad we didn't invest more time than needed. And then we're like, okay, actually we should, you know, it's a good idea, but like no one's using it. So let's like figure out why. And like, then we came up with a different product idea of how to like, you know, ingest all the emails and show it in the system so we built a second version and then we launched it and it turned out like the second time it's the same problem like product wise we got a little bit closer but when we talked to the internal users like the you know the sales team they still felt like it wasn't really quite what they wanted and so again like i was glad to like you know that we didn't overinvest in that feature and like build it really nice like we built it in kind of a hacky way but then we we're like okay what did we learn from all of this like you know product wise like what did we learn about you know from our internal users about how they use the system so then we were sitting down and then we're like, actually on the technical side, like let's also like this time we felt like, now we know like what we need to build. And so we actually built the third time, like in a kind of a nice, like clean way on the product side, we kind of knew what we needed to build. And this time it was like a smashing success. Like everyone loves the feature. So I don't know if there's like a rule of thumb, but like I generally found that like the, the third time is when you should build things in like a clean, nice way. The first okay. two times you should kind of <laughs> take on technical debt uh, deliberately because it might be the right thing, you know, because typically the first and the second time you're building something uh, it's kind of throwaway code anyway so you don't want to invest too much time in it.
1: Okay, okay. So you have mentioned that uh, you've done the uh, migration of the you know, legacy tech stack to Amazon and Postgres and uh, Python yeah. and uh, also implemented microservices architecture. So basically, could you could you tell us maybe a few few major tips uh, uh, for uh, that that you that, that you need to be aware about when when you when you're starting to do these uh, major migrations? Because this is something very typical for the for the uh, technology companies at some point of time.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, so we when I came in, there was only two engineers, and they were working on Azure. They were using Mongo ember Mm -hmm. node and so first time aside I don't know if we should be using Azure because I think most engineers have far more experience with AWS there's more of an ecosystem I mean this is also like four or five years ago so I think Azure was a little bit smaller back then but also we were on like Linux etc so and and, you know so I think the AWS ecosystem is far more supported so so that was actually probably the easiest migration we did that in just like a matter of weeks we just moved everything to AWS and Mm -hmm. and, you know because it was early enough and then a little bit later, we actually added Kubernetes and it was kind of a similar thing. It was like early enough that it was like kind of easy. Um, I was pushing a lot from moving away from Mongo because I felt that Mongo was actually not the right fit for what we needed. Uh, Postgres has much better support for transactions, indexes, joins, mm-hmm. all the, you know, relational stuff that you need in a financial application. So it wasn't very hard for me to make that case. Uh, that migration was a lot harder. Cause you know, we had this site up and running. So we had to like kind of have some tables in Mongo versus some tables in Postgres. So that took like several months to do. It. And that that was a lot of effort, but I'm, I'm glad I did that pretty early. That was about a year in cause it would have been a massive pain to do it now. Uh, and then at some point, you know, then like the next thing I wanted to address was like, Node and using Ember and you know, I didn't like Ember. Like I didn't like Node, but like having worked with Node at that point for like one, two years. I was like, it's like fine enough. So, so I decided let's not, you know, we had like, you know, we, we started out with the monolith and the monolith kept big, growing bigger and bigger. And at some point I was pushing for like, you know, we should actually factor out things into separate services so that we can test and things in isolation and deploy things in isolation. Um, and, uh, but I never wanted to rush that. And I think kind of going back to what I said about tech debt and like, sometimes like willingly taking on tech debt, like, sometimes like the first few times when you're building something, you don't really know exactly what you're building. And so mm-hmm. it's sometimes hard to define the boundaries between two services until you like, fully understand the problem. And so, yeah. so it's been more of like an, as those boundaries become clear, then we typically tend to factor things out into separate services. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're not rushing that thing. So we still have probably 60% of our complexity inside one big monolith and it's like way too much. But, but on the other hand, it's like you don't want to rush like just like factoring things out. Because like if you just like factor things out into microservices, there's so many bad things that can happen. Like what if you pick the wrong boundaries? Then you just have like so much like cross-service communication. Or even worse, like what if you like split things up in a way that you can't test things in isolation and you need a service mesh. And then you basically get like none of the benefits of microservices with all the pains. Uh, it gets a lot harder to, to test things locally. Um, you don't get the benefit of like, you know, isolated fast test suites. You don't get the benefits of deploying things in isolation. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so, so it's like tricky. So it's like more like an as as We sort of see clear interfaces. Then we tend to, you know, next time we rebuild something, we typically like at, at that point, factor it out and rewrite it in a different language. And I used to be pushing for like, let's actually rebuild it in Python. Cause I think Python is like a slightly more productive language but over time i've also come to realize like node is fine especially now we're moving to typescript a lot like typescript is actually fine uh people le- like it a lot here so so we actually move out a lot of stuff and just like keep it in node or t- TypeScript.
1: so why have you chosen uh python is it because you think it's uh you, you can develop faster or so what what
0: i mean i think python is, is like like first of all like I think people exaggerate the differences between languages right like I think mm-hmm. between the top major languages like there's probably more not more than like 10 to 20 percent difference in productivity I mean obviously we built things in Fortran it would be like a large difference in productivity but, mm-hmm. but between the like main popular languages like you know Python and Node or whatever like you know there's like no major difference in productivity so 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 like I don't want to like rush it I think Python is has a fantastic ecosystem, especially on the data side. Uh, um, It's like a very productive uh, language. Like people, you know, it's easy to debug. It has so much support and so many frameworks and, you know, very robust and reliable. Like it's not the fastest language, but a lot of our stuff is not like high volume. Like we're not doing like high frequency trading. So that's totally fine for us. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, like, you know, like if Python is only 10, 20% more productive then you know node then like like there's no point like rush it, like rewriting like thousands of lines of code like it's not gonna pay for itself
1: okay okay got it got it so you mentioned that you have a small team of uh, data engineers already and yep. uh, what is the i mean like what are the major uh, uh, tasks and projects they're working on at the moment i mean like in general so is it like related like to to data cleansing or like integration projects or Some big data analytics, maybe, or even machine Uh, learning.
0: Not a ton of big data. I think it's, like, all over the place. There are only four, so it's a small team. But I'm trying to grow it very aggressively. I I always think there's, like, a, you know, first few years, you're sort of focusing so much on building a core product. You don't even have users or data. And then you start Mm -hmm. to get the users. And then you start to get the data. And then suddenly you find yourself with a lot of data. You're, like, actually, we should really take advantage of this data. And then you need to hire a data team very quickly. So I'm kind of in that phase right now. Uh most of our data challenges are not like crazy machine learning algorithms like you know mm-hmm. there's a little bit of like machine learning uh I'd say probably our engineers spent, you know data team spends like 10 50% of their time on machine learning but there's also a lot of more like you know building data sets um one of the things I decided quite early is that I wanted this company to be more of a self-service model for data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Spotify, like we had like one centralized data team. And if you had a question, you, you kind of had to go to them and ask us like, uh, you know, you know, what's the user growth in this country, whatever. And that slowed down like people getting access to data quite a lot. And so, but you know, back then it was sort of needed Cause like we had a lot of data and like Hadoop was the only way and like only our team could write Hadoop jobs. Here, I've taken a very different approach. So like. I basically just like put everything in a SQL database and like given the whole company access to that SQL database and tell them like, you know, you should learn SQL. Like you can go and like figure out the answers to most of your questions yourself. And so that means like a lot of the data team, like what they're doing, what they're doing is actually, they, they don't have to spend too much time on like basic business questions. They can spend more time on like slightly more complex things like building ETL workflows, like building more like ref, you know, refining tables and like closing that to the rest of the company. They also work very closely with the product team, so every data person is assigned to product team. And so, a big part of what they're doing is like understanding user. I mean, again, this is direct-to-consumer business, and so what I've learned is like you really want like data people who are like absolutely focused on consumer experience and and like understanding consumers. And so, uh, so they focus a lot on like you know how do users get to our site, how do they convert, like what are the different steps in the conversion funnel, what's the drop-off rate, like how can we improve it on the marketing side we have a data person focusing a lot on like acquisition costs like what are different channels and you know how do we how do we improve our acquisition costs by you know increasing volume in one channel versus another channel and what are the types of users that convert more than the other types of users and how much should we be willing to pay for them to get their site, and, um, and things like that and um, yeah so so it, it's it's a total generalist and my experience early on at, in a data team uh, is that you want people who can do a little bit of everything you want people who are like decent at writing code like they definitely shouldn't be like bad coders uh so because w- w- what you don't want is like someone who like comes in and like is like oh like i have an answer to this business question but i need this other data set and i don't know how to get that okay. so i'm just gonna pass it to someone else like you want people who can be like okay i need to answer this business question Turns out that like, you know, in order to do that, I need to write a Python script to join like, you know, four tables and get this, you know, and then hit this API. And then they can write that code. And, you know, and, and also, and then by the way, I'm gonna productionize it. So it's a cron job that runs every night at 2am or whatever. Uh, you want people who can like move all across the stack, business stuff, data ETL stuff, machine learning stuff, um, you know,
1: all that stuff okay okay got it so as soon as you walk on the direct to consumer space at the moment and and yep. you you have you have a great experience here and uh, you know in, in the fintech city Club, we mostly talk to, uh, mostly talked uh, with, uh, with people who work on some uh, uh b2b solutions and the product management approach looks like In in many cases, looks like uh, you need to talk to your uh, uh, prospective clients, and uh, you need to prioritize the feedbacks, and then uh, based on that, you will be uh, you know managing your product uh, product backlog. So what 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 is the difference in the direct to consumer space? So how the product management approach looks like here?
0: Yeah, that's an excellent question, and and something I have a lot of thoughts about. I, I think. You know, being at a consumer-facing startup for almost seven years, like one of the most important things I learned is the faster you make the feedback cycle, the faster you learn, the faster you iterate, and the better product you bake. And and so what I mean with that is that you need to be able to move extremely quickly. And so, for for instance, some of the things we're doing here is I've when I came in, I, I pushed a lot, and we started doing continuous deployment mm-hmm. from basically from day one. And so. The idea is that as soon as something is merged into master, we have a very extensive test suite that kicks off. And assuming all those tests pass, we deploy to production immediately. And so we deploy it to production probably fifty or hundred times every day. Mm. Uh, and so a lot of our work is focused on small incremental changes and getting those out as quickly as possible. Uh, and and that lets it that lets us and then learning from that, right? Like so in many cases, we can actually ship something, let's say we're building a new feature, we can ship it in the morning, and already by noon, we'll have some data about how users are interacting with that feature. So let's say we realize, actually, we made a mistake, like, you know, it's really confusing, like users, they're not using this feature because the button has a really confusing label. We see that in, you know, the data, uh, we can like know that within hours and then we can like say actually let's fix that button and release like a Second version or like fix the number of things and in the same day And then we can like, you know, watch the users interact with the fe- feature or, Like look at the data and understand like, you know A-B test data, but also like qualitatively look at or like or like talk to our customer support team and see if they have feedback and Then like later today l- later in the same day release like a third version so like making that like feedback loop like super tight and like being able to like iterate very quickly that's one of our biggest competitive advantage and especially when you compare us to big bank, you know, big banks, they will it, launch a new version of their site maybe every three months. So in that time we've literally maybe launched like a thousand upgrades to our site. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so everything I've learned and like, we've very deliberately, you know, focused on um, creating a process that lets us move very quickly and incorporate feedback loops all the time. And, um, and let's just be flexible and iterate. And so, for instance, we don't do sprint cycles because, like, if you have sprint cycles, that again, like, that assumes like you have like a you know two to three week like planning thing, and then you ship at mm-hmm. the end. When you're doing uh, continuous uh, deployment, so okay. it makes more sense to have more of a you know Kanban style, a continuous flow model mm-hmm. where you know, we have a Trello, we keep things in a backlog, we try to impose whip limits, but at the end of the day, like we we try to ship things continuously every day, like you know all the time. Uh, so it's a very different consumer. And, and, and I actually, you know, I don't, I don't think this could be overstated. I really think that this is a new model for building consumer products that was, mm-hmm. like, basically invented in Silicon Valley in the last 10, 20 years, or maybe even, like, 5 to 10 years, like, this ability to, like, ship quickly. Mm-hmm. And it completely changes the way how you think about building products. Uh, and I think, you know, it's going to take another 10 years before uh, – big financial institutions figure out that this is the right way to build consumer products. You need to have an obsession mm-hmm. with consumers' behavior and you have mm-hmm. to have a realization. You can't predict how consumers are gonna use your feature. You mm-hmm. know, like you're gonna launch a feature and you have no idea like usually if it's gonna work or not. Like in many cases, like you you, you have to launch it and, and and see what's gonna happen. And and when you mm-hmm. start to embrace the fact that users are very unpredictable and fickle, like you, you sort of, your entire process of building a product changes. Like you start, you start to realize like actually let's not build this like three month like big bed project. Let's like launch like a first version and see what happens. And then like mm-hmm. based on that, we'll like incorporate feedback and launch the second version, then the third version, mm-hmm. then the fourth version or whatever.
1: So what do you think uh are the most important things for product managers to do in, uh, in the direct to consumer space? I think they have to have an obsession so, with consumers. Mm-hmm. They have to like
0: really like picture walking themselves a mile on issues of consumers and they have to, you know, constantly like look at user, uh, behavior, talk to consumers, look at, you know, what's coming out of the customer support team. They have to look at data. They have to work with data engineers to figure out like, how are people interacting with the site? Mm -hmm. Uh, and they have to have a natural curiosity and they have to be very commercial. They have to, you know, not just, you know, I think one of the mistakes we made, for a long time was we focused so much on automation. Mm -hmm. We thought that like, oh, let's like automate the mortgage process. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like, but like what I was, what I started arguing a couple years ago was like, doesn't matter if you have the best pizza in the town, if it's in the back of a rat infested alley, no one's going to eat your pizza. And Mm -hmm. so you need to make sure you also have like, you know, a nice storefront. and like people are coming to your site and then Mm -hmm. they're, you know, and then they're ordering your pizza. Like you need to make sure to like, think very commercially about, you know, acquisition and conversion also and like how you what's your value proposition and how do you explain that to consumers and you know and and what's the market landscape and and um and what are the different friction points that a user encounters And, and 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 like and those are as important as having like you know the 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 core like automation proprietary financial technology like if not even more important
1: okay cool cool so um Another question is about uh, as soon as you uh, uh, you uh, you moved from one uh, uh, rather famous company to uh, to another, and uh, probably it was some uh, you know some decision point when you make this decision to move uh, uh, to to uh, another role in another company. So how how would you how would you define what was the I mean, so what, what, why have you done this? So what was the point? So when, totally. how, how did you realize that you need to make this uh, career move for yourself?
0: Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, first of all, when I joined Spotify, it was an unknown company, and I actually turned down an offer from Google, and everyone thought I was stupid for joining a music company because mm-hmm. they're like, music, like, why would you want to work in the music industry? There's no money. <laughs> but like, why did I join Spotify seven or like ten years ago? Actually, eleven years ago. Uh, I liked the product. I thought it was a really cool product and but like actually most importantly there was a really smart group of people that I knew at Spotify that I wanted to work with and I figured you know I'll go work with them and like I don't even know if the product is going to be successful but it doesn't matter I'll learn a lot from them and I think that's always the most important thing is like you work with smart people that you're going to learn from especially when you're young. You want to focus on building your human capital and then you know I was lucky like I ended up at a startup that ended up growing a lot and I think what I learned at that, you know, being at Spotify for so many years was like the faster your company grows, like the faster your personal growth is. Like I got, you know, I started managing people when I was 25, started, I didn't have like a formal background in machine learning. I know a little bit about it, but I started, you know, running a machine learning team like pretty early. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like, you know, going through a fast growing startup is, is uh, it's like being in a different place every year. It's like being in a different company every year. So, so I think that learning experience was very, very unique. I'm very happy I was there. And then like one day I realized like Spotify was like a very big company and like it was 2,000 people. And I thought to myself, you know what, like all this stuff I've learned at Spotify, you know, I, I actually wanna take a more active role and like maybe go back and like, I missed the early days of Spotify and I-, I would love to go back and take everything I learned and like apply it in a more active way by being someone who's more of an executive and like can make those decisions, like take everything I learned from Spotify and apply that. And so at that time I was looking around and you know, I thought to myself, Technology has already changed a lot of stuff like media, communication, publishing, you know, music, whatever. Like, I think it's fair to say Spotify transformed the music industry. And so I was looking for like, what's like the next thing that technology is going to change? And I realized like one part of like talking to a lot of people, like one thought that I was like, maybe it's like, you know, something like banking, like, you know, especially in the US, like banking services are really bad. And like, you know, especially mortgage industries is terrible. And it's Mm -hmm. one of the largest industries in in the country and it's completely broken. And I think. You know, so I, that kind of opened my eyes, and and I thought to myself, maybe the smartest move you can do is, you know, go into like a really really terrible industry. And then I was like very important, very impressed with the early team here. It's here at Better. Uh, so I always thought to myself, maybe the, like opportunities, get a group of smart people, go into a broken industry, and then fix that industry. And in the same way as I think Spotify transformed the music industry. I think the sort of prospect that we have is to, to transform the entire mortgage industry, which, you know, hundred times larger. Th- industries are always like cool once they are already transformed. Like if you'd mm-hmm. asked a bunch of engineers like five years ago, would you want to go work in the taxi industry? They'd be like taxi, that sounds super boring. Why would I want to work there? But now like Uber and Lyft are kind of cool, you know? So like, I think, I think if you want to be a little bit ahead of the wave, you kind of need to think about like, what are industries that right now are really boring and terrible but, you know, with technology, it could be much, much better. And that's mm-hmm. where you want to be if you want to be a little bit contrarian and kind of think, you know, what's like the next cool industry to be in, you know, five years down the road. Mortgages are, are still like very unsexy, but it's also it's like a big part of, you know, American uh, lives, like to get a home. Yes, and, so, you know, if you think about it that way, and like if you think about real estate, like there's something to it. Like there's something about like helping, you know, normal people get a home. And. And uh, it's a big financial transaction most people do in their lifetimes. And, and it's absolutely terrible. So so that that excites me. And I think, you know, in retrospect, I think, you know, people are gonna look back and see hopefully that like, oh, wow, that's like in an industry that really needed a change. Um, and hopefully we can be a big part of changing that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So, and how how will you define uh, the broken industry? So what is that? So how, how will you understand that? How can you understand that the industry is broken? uh on, and uh, uh, why do you think more specifically the mortgage industry is broken
0: yeah i think i mean if you look at just like the amount of transaction costs in a real estate transaction in the us mm-hmm. it's actually among the highest in developed you know out of developed countries mm-hmm. i'm from sweden and you know transaction costs are much lower in in sweden like so there's a lot of middlemen and i think you know so there's like real estate agents there's mortgage brokers there's loan officers and you know, title agents and all kinds of people who want to take a little bit of money. And I think, um, I mean, part of it is like actually sort of regulatory like lobbyist effort, but I think also what ended up happening was like, it actually wasn't so, I mean, it was like broken in a different way, like before the subprime crisis, like it was like broken in the sense that like anyone could get a mortgage and that was probably bad. But in terms of like how complex the process was, it was actually more of a streamlined easy process, right? Mm -hmm. And so after the subprime crisis in 2008, a lot of new rules took effect, right? Like, probably, like, you know, some extent justified. Uh, and what ended up happening was uh, banks, because they're very conservative and not fast-moving, you know, when all these rules took effect, they just, like, threw people at the problem. So, you know, it used to cost about $1,000 in labor costs to manufacture a loan back in 2007. Now it's about $10,000, because there's so many manual processes involved in manufacturing a loan, right? It's, like, all these people, like, shuffling paper and like looking at things and approving things and check double checking things and 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 you know every six months there's like a little bit more regulation and so banks are like oh my god we're just going to add more people to like check these things and so no one's really thought about like what you know can we actually just like automate the whole thing like can we like cut out all these like you know humans you know that you know want commission and, and want their cut and like you know are obviously very expensive and are obviously something that consumers pay for can we remove them and replace them with technology to do this fully automatically? And so that's our approach. And by doing that, we cut a lot of costs. We can offer lower rates, better user experience, et cetera. Uh, but I think sort of, you know, and, and and also like what, what, a, a big part of what we're doing is like, it's, it wasn't until recently that there are actually a lot of APIs in this industry and a lot of data, like mm-hmm. data partners that we can actually, so, so, so we can get the data we need to do a lot of this automatically. But so like finally, like, you know, banks have gone to a point where like the process is really bad, you know, the costs have been growing, there are already the APIs. And like, I think funnily, like now it's at the point where um, it's time for a startup to, to rethink and like actually what would the mortgage process look like if we rebuilt it from scratch? The whole industry basically operates as if the internet doesn't exist. Right. You know, yes. to the extent that people use computers, it's like, instead of like, you know, moving around things with pen and paper, they're like emailing mm-hmm. PDFs. Like, which is like basically the same processes they just said you know email PDFs instead of walking around with paper mm-hmm. uh, nothing about the the process has actually changed
1: okay got it got it yeah we're interesting uh, yeah I think in I mean like fintech overall uh, is working with many different uh, broken industries I think uh, because in yeah. the wealth in wealth management and in insurance in banking yeah. space and even in payments where we have many yeah. you know digital transformation transformation, but you still need to do many things.
0: Um, Absolutely. I have,
1: yeah, I have a couple last questions. And actually, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you need to talk to people. Uh, and uh, the question is, so you also mentioned about the ma- mentoring. So what would you uh, define like a efficient man- mentorship process? Uh, so what is that? So why, why do we need to do this? Uh, with our people? Mentoring? Yeah, mentoring. Yeah,
0: so yeah. you. you... Um, yeah, I think the most important things that I always learn is like, you know, I have a great relationship or used to have, you know, at least with the CTO at Spotify, which is, you know, a little bit of a mentor for me. I learned a lot of things from him. And for me, it was like really helpful to, to always like hear like what's like beyond, behind the curve. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when I was managing like 10 people, you know, being prepared for what's going to happen when I'm managing 20 people. And, that, and then yeah. when I manage 20 people, be prepared for what's going to happen when I manage 40 people. And now I'm like super nervous about what's going to happen when I manage 80 people. And so, you know, like hearing that from people who've been through like, you know, one step ahead before, I think to me, that's always been like the most useful thing uh, to hear from them. And then I think this is, you know, best practices, like knowledge sharing, you know, what, like how often should you do one-on-ones? Like what's the best structure for one-on-ones? Like what's the best structure for communicating changes to your team or, or how to structure a team, whatever, like, you know, just more like information sharing. That can be more with peers, though, but I don't know if that do answers.
1: You, do, do you think this should be more formal or informal process, Mentor, mentoring and mentorship? Like, uh, you have a team of engineers, so um, I mean, I don't know. Do, do you think you need to, to start doing mentorship? Uh, is it, uh, uh, you know, a must-have thing or only for people who are asking for mentorship? I mean, as a manager, like, you're,
0: as a CTO, like, I believe a lot in servant leadership. And I think that's, like, inherently somewhat, like, mentor-based, right? It's, like, you know, the manager's role is to some extent, like, observe and, like, trying to step in and, like, help when, like, they see, like, their direct support struggling. And so, like, I think, like, in that sense, like, a lot of, like, you know, a lot of the core of engineering management is, like, is mentorship, right? So, you know, call it formalized, like, I guess, like, you know, it's a part of just, like, management. Um, I think it's good on top of that, if people have like informal relationships with companies, especially like for me, it's useful to like have like informal relationships with people outside of my company. I don't even think of most of them as mentors. I think of more of them as just like people I know that have a different perspective on things that I can learn from, right? So that's more like informal. And I think that's okay. like, the level where I want it, want it to be. I'd be. It'd be awkward for me to like go to someone and say, hey, do you want to be my mentor? Like i 've never like in reality found that people like really think about it that way it 's more like just people having coffee like sharing knowledge and sometimes yeah. like one person is far more senior than the other person uh, but it 's still sort of fundamentally like people just like talking about the different challenges they have and, and sharing advice
1: yeah me personally i like to you know I like mentorship process because I can talk to more senior people and ask questions, but it 's more informal you know like talking uh, anyway, right. having a cup of coffee and, uh, talking about totally. things. Yeah. And, and also a question regarding New York, uh, machine learning, meetup. Uh, meet up. Uh, yeah. so could, could you tell us a few, maybe a few tips, few insights, how to run a successful community technology community?
0: Yeah, it's actually pretty straightforward. I think, mm-hmm. um, you need to find a venue every month. You need to find a good speaker. Uh, I've actually been like too swamped like last few months. so I've been doing a kind of a poor job, to, admittedly. But it's something I want to start you know, doing again more. Okay. And the biggest challenge for me has been to like keep the conversation at like a sufficiently high level. Like especially mm-hmm. something like machine learning tends to attract like people who have like, you know, complete beginners. And mm-hmm. so that's fine. Like every once in a while, I don't mind like having like a more like, you know, high level talk about like, here are some cool things you can use machine learning for. But I think it's important also to have more of a community where people can like learn from each other. And so occasionally, you know, every once in a while, I try to do like a really advanced topic, you know, let's talk about, I don't know, like, or like some, you know, bring in some like researcher and then actually give people a little bit of a warning. Like this may not be a talk for beginners. Like this is more like intermediate or advanced machine learning practitioners. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's quite important too, because otherwise, especially with machine learning, but, but with, I think with most meetups in general, there's always a little bit of a danger that like you only attract like absolute beginners. And then I think it's like harder to create a good community of like, because a big part of what I want to meet up to be is also like for smart people to sort of meet and exchange learnings about, you know, how they use machine learning. Uh, and that's harder if like everyone is a beginner.
1: Okay, okay. i so, 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 uh,
0: are totally welcome is my point, but like occasionally I like to keep also like a little talks that are like, a little bit more advanced.
1: Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. So you mentioned that uh, you're, uh, you know, uh, you you like statistical models, and uh, I also read a couple of your articles on uh, on that. So do you believe that uh, uh, you know it 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 can be beneficial to measure the performance of your engineering team in some way, or or not? Because you know. This is- I think it's hard. There are wars on this topic,
0: whether I, to do think, this or not. Yeah, I actually got to run, I have a meeting at 1030, but- uh, Okay, yeah, no problem. Uh, mm-hmm. this up. Uh, no, I, I think it's very hard to measure engineering productivity. Like, you know, occasionally, when I'm like a little bit nervous, like does this engineer actually add a lot of value? Then I'll like go and like look in the like, Git history and see, oh, actually this person has committed a lot of stuff. Cool, that's fine. But But I think it's like very hard to say Oh, actually going forward, like all your productivity is going to be measured by the number of git commit because then you set a really bad incentive. So I, I think you have to have like 100% managerial discretion in terms of how you measure okay. performance. I, I think cool. yeah, I don't have a better answer to that. I think it's important. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah, just to summarize, uh, maybe a couple of advices, how to, how to, how to learn in CTO role? What, what works That'll for learn? you? Yeah, how to, how to learn as a CTO I mean, like, yeah. we, we discussed the mentorship, but maybe a couple of advices on that. What, what yeah. else can, can think, people do in this role?
0: I, I think the most important thing is to, like, be, like, very humble about, like, your own shortcomings. And so it's, like, CTO role is, like, one of these roles where it's, like, you look back a year ago and you're, like, oh, my God, I really sucked a year ago. I did all these, like, stupid things. Like, it's so bad. Like, I should never have done that. But then, like, you realize, like, actually, probably in a year, I'm going to look back and say the same thing. And so, so, you know, what are those things that I'm doing right now that are really stupid and, like, I shouldn't be doing? And so, I don't know. That's, like, my most important thing is, like, at a very high level is, like, being open to realize, like, you know, you, should, you can probably do your job a lot better. The other thing I, I would say is also as a CTO, you kind of need to figure out every year how to replace yourself. Like, oh, you man. know, everything you're doing. Like my goal is always to like, you know, delegate everything to the point where I don't have to do anything. But like what I end up finding is like by the time I do that, that a bunch of new things come up that I need to deal with. And so I almost think like every year, like you need to like, it's, it should be a new job. It's, it should almost be like, you know, the stuff you're doing, you know, a year ago, by now you should have delegated so that everything you're doing now is things you didn't do a year ago. Roughly. I mean, you know, recruiting I'm always still going to do, but like a lot of the other stuff.
1: Makes sense, makes sense. Okay, Eric. So thank you very much for the conversation for yeah, this.